From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. In a year where good news has been hard to come by, the last week has been a spectacular ray of sunshine as the CDC's new guidelines for vaccinated Americans have led to the first real movement toward normalcy since this nightmare began. For sports, that means fans are coming back. And in Gainesville, the potential for 100% capacity as soon as this weekend at softball. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss Tim Walton's regional draw, baseball's continued solid run in SEC play, lacrosse's postseason revenge tour, men's tennis heading to the Elite Eight, and most wanted memorabilia in the PAT. Then, softball's web gem whiz Hannah Adams joins us to talk about the Gators' walk-off winning ways, her astronomical growth at the plate, and much more. But first... Most successful runs to the mecca of college softball began on your own turf, and as Tim Walton's team opens play in the NCAA tournament, we began our roundtable by establishing how important that home field advantage will be for Florida to return to the World Series. As, as Tim Walton has said, says every year, uh, and you've heard him say many times, Adam, the any season that ends in Oklahoma City is, is considered a, uh, a successful one for this program. The best way for the Gators to get to Oklahoma City at year in and year out has been to host regionals. They'll have the regional this week and uh, with Baylor as the second seed in that region, uh, followed by South Alabama and South Florida, who will be their first round opponent. And should they survive, obviously, they'll get a uh, super regional at home um, next week amid an announcement that, you know, campus is opening. So maybe we'll have like another carnival atmosphere at KSB Stadium for uh, for, uh, for these regionals. But first things first, um, the Gators uh, do got to take on South Florida uh, in a fir- in a first round game. And that mean now this is a team that they've beaten four times this year, but it's also a team that has a pitcher by the name of Georgina Corrick, who uh, has, is one of the is a first team All-American pitcher. Um, uh, her, her ERA for the season is 0.97. Wow. Um, uh, one point during the year, she won 18 straight games. I believe I want to say her, her record and I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it's like 33 and six this season. Um, Florida has beaten her twice this year. And in one of the games they got to her fairly early. So, um, but if a pitcher with really good stuff, um, has that stuff and can, you know, start stringing some outs together and, Team gets frustrated, you know things 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 can get kind of squirrely. But you you and I know Tim Walton will have the team prepared. Um, it's a team that is playing very very well right now. They got hot at the end of the season. Yes, uh, the what happened in, at the SEC tournament championship against Alabama on the road, basically in Tuscaloosa, mm-hmm. uh, didn't work out for them. They fell behind three nothing early on in the game. Um, defense, I think, let them down a little bit uh, in that game. Uh, Alabama scored on some small ball early. Um, and when I say defense love now, that's uncharacteristic of a Tim Walton team, but, uh, I imagine knowing his attention to detail, he's focused on some stuff and they'll be quite ready for, uh, for this, for this first regional round with Baylor as the second best team, uh, in that region. Baylor is a team. It's not 
what we might remember Baylor. Remember a couple years ago, Florida played Baylor in the College World Series on the way to one of those uh, uh, NCAA championships. They're not that Baylor team. They're more of a middling Baylor team, but certainly you got to think they're going to be pretty good. Um, And so in terms of Florida will have a difficult uh, first round match in in, in facing Georgiana Couric, but uh, this is a a Florida team with Charlotte Eccles, with Kendall Lindemann, with Hannah Adams, both hitting the ball pretty well right now. So uh, uh, they got to feel, you know, pretty good and, and being at home to make it feel any better. You know, it's interesting too, when you look at the bracket and, and when you're, you know, when you're Florida and you always know where you expect to be, you start looking down the road um, and they would match up with potentially in a super regional, the winner of the Athens regional, which Georgia actually is the only team that's hosting that is not a top 16 seed. So it's actually Duke is the 13, but it's in Athens. So you got to think Georgia's got a good chance of coming out of that. So you could have a Florida-Georgia Super Regional. And then if you projected a step further to Oklahoma City, the potential first-round matchup, if the seeds hold 4-5, would be the Gators against Oklahoma State. And of course, Kenny Gajewski, Tim Walton's former assistant. So there's a lot of potential storylines that... uh that could play themselves out in the next few weeks, which is why they call it mayhem emphasis on the, the MAY part. And Kenny has, has been here for a regional and if, and in terms you want to flush out the storylines even more. Uh, I think the last time, and I'm sure the last time Florida lost the super regional was that walk off at the hands of Georgia. I believe it was in the, uh, in the 2016 season, which um, off a, a, a walk off Homer, they swept them in two games, if I'm not mistaken. As a, 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 a Casio, Lisa Casio gave up a, a home run dead dead center. That that oh boy, I remember being around that team. After that, that was you know that that ended the careers of some of some really really good uh, players. Players that have won back to back national championships, and that's how that uh, that's how that run ended for uh, players like Kelsey Stewart and Aubrey Monroe. But to your point, yes, uh, storylines to be had. Let's see how they play out. Yep, we will certainly keep track of those. And uh, hopefully next week we're talking about a super regional matchup with one of those we just talked about. Uh, on the baseball side, Scott, you know, we talked about this last week. The team has continued kind of grinding it out through the SEC. We mentioned that Tennessee Sunday where they avoided the sweep as being, you know, probably a turning point. And I know you, you ran some numbers on this last week in terms of really identifying how much the team has changed since that point. Yeah, even with Sunday's loss against Georgia, you know, they still took two or three against the Bulldogs. Uh, that's five straight SEC series the Gators have won. Uh, 15 and five overall, Adam, since that uh, comeback win at Tennessee. And, uh, you know, they were averaging seven runs in those 15 wins. Uh, so, I mean, their offense has been hitting the lineup. Really, I mean, you've, you've had guys go hot and cold at different points of the year. Judd Fabian. Started off hot, went cold. Now he's got 20 home runs. One of uh, only five people in history to hit 20 home runs in a season for Florida baseball. You got the pitching there uh, with Mace, Alamon, and Barco starting Jack Leftwich in the bullpen. And, you know, we talked about Sully has had to push some buttons this year to see what works and what doesn't. I think they've hit hit some uh, pieces that have, and, of course, it's never going to get easier because they closed the season uh, this weekend at Arkansas Thursday through Saturday. Arkansas was number one in the country and you know, took two out of three, I think, in Tennessee. I'm just looking at the stats here, I mean, you've got in the SEC East, you've got Tennessee 
at the top. They're a half a game up on Vanderbilt. And then Florida's right there, third, technically one game back of Arkansas and a half a game back of Vanderbilt. So uh, in our, and then in the West side, you know, Arkansas has got the best overall record in the conference, but it's only one, one game better than Tennessee. So Florida has a chance to go out and uh, really not only help its cause for the NCAA tournament, but to shake up uh, the SEC on the final weekend. And then you, they go straight to the SEC tournament. So, you know, we'll talk a lot about what is there potentially for this team, but there's just so much baseball between in the next really 10 to 12 days because they're going to go straight from Arkansas to Hoover and SEC tournaments loaded as always. You're looking at maybe 10, 11 teams getting into the tournament. Uh, so it's all, it's all going to be fun to watch Adam, but I do think that this Florida baseball team is, is playing its best ball of the year. And there was some good news in college baseball that, that, the NCAA has announced uh, playoffs for baseball and softball are now able to have full capacity uh, if the local uh, guidelines fit. And if baseball is hosting, which they still have a good shot, uh, they would be able to finally fill Florida ballpark. So that's that's some good news to look forward to. Well, and to that point, Scott, I mean, this is this is a really this is an important time, not just you know in society, but also in sports. This idea that. We're planning for not just a near-term full-capacity stadiums, but the Swamp. You know, Swamp's going to be back up and, and running like normal this fall, which is what all of us had hoped for. But I don't know that many of us really thought was a realistic possibility until probably the last few weeks, maybe the last month or so. Yeah, you've seen momentum gain. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's good that we're finally to that point because there were times, you know, last year at this time when, we, we didn't know when that would be, and it, it took a long time. And on the UF front, uh, the University of Florida did announce this week, uh, gave an operational update, and the plan is for all athletic facilities and events to return to normal uh, for the fall. Uh, I know here at the UAA, uh, we are planning to return to basically normal activity on June 28th. You know, masks are optional now with this new UF update, so – uh, it's taken a long time, but you're seeing it not only here. You're see, you've seen it in different places already ahead of uh, the curve. If you've been watching some baseball in Atlanta, Braves have been uh, packing them in, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, yeah. Ole, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, they've had big crowds. So uh, finally reached down here in Gainesville at the Swamp, and I don't have to tell you or Chris or anybody out there listening, uh, a 90,000-seat Swamp packed is a lot more fun than a 17,000 reduced capacity, even when you have a really good team like the Gators had last year. It's a lot more fun when there's people there to enjoy it. And the good news is it looks like uh, with the NCAA's announcement this week, uh, at least the tail end of this athletic season with baseball and softball, they're going to be able to, to get uh, full crowds to watch those events. Yeah, it's a, a real testament to uh... – to the scientific community that we've gotten where we are with vaccinations. So if you've not gotten vaccinated, make your plan to do it so you can be at the swamp, full capacity, no mask. You can enjoy the, the freedoms again that uh, I think that we're all starting to relish coming back into our lives. Um, in terms of Gator postseasons that are going well, softball is about to begin. There's lacrosse. How about the start that they had at home? Uh, we had talked about last week the potential for a matchup between the Gators and Jacksonville, one of the two teams they lost to this year, kind of surprisingly so. 
Uh, and that did happen, and the Gators just crushed them. So you talk about maybe having that extra carrot of motivation. It looks like they had that and then some to move on to the Elite Eight. One of the things uh, that the Jacksonville game, I believe, was a 12-11 loss. And in that game, I want to say uh, Jacksonville outshot them 31-21. I think they, uh, they killed them on the draw. I want to say it was 18-6 to or something like that. And this time around, I mean, those are all points of emphasis with the scout heading into heading in the into this rematch, as it were. And they completely uh, flipped those flipped those digits. Florida dominated. If you win the draw, you have the ball and the way Florida plays offensively, they're going to score. And I mean, they ran away with the game. Um, I think they scored the first four goals of the game. Uh, Jacksonville did make it, I think, four to one. It may, might have even have been four to two, but it was ten to two by halftime. And they went on to win the game, win, uh, win the game, seventeen to three, advance to who else? Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse has kind of been a bugaboo for this program um, over the course of the years, but uh, Florida's back in the Elite Eight for the first time since twenty eighteen, uh, which isn't that long ago actually, but. Uh, They'll probably go up to Syracuse with a little bit of confidence. I know both Scott and I have been out there to a couple matches the last couple of weeks, and uh, they're playing well. And I tell you what, that those fans, they get after it. So the cross will be in Syracuse Saturday to try and get back to the Final Four. Uh, and, of course, we'll be talking next week about how they do. We also have next week to be telling more of the story of men's tennis and their march to the program's first national championship. They got down to the uh, the bubble, if you will, in Orlando for the final 16, and they ran through Illinois pretty easily on Monday, beat them four zip. Now they're in the Elite Eight as well. And as the number one seed, I mean, all things looking pretty positive for them as they continue that march toward history. Yeah, things are lining up very nicely uh, for the Gators. I mean, they've been building toward this point, really, since Brian Shelton got here. And they were so close in 2019. Thought last year might be the year before COVID shut it down. They came back, regrouped, and uh, they picked up right where uh, they were. I mean, it's a program that they had an early season win against Tennessee that uh, at the time, Tennessee was ranked second. Florida was 11th. I think that win catapulted them up to the top of the polls. And although they lost to Tennessee in the SEC tournament, uh, one of only two losses all year. So um, what you're talking about the other day, you just have, I mean, you've got two guys in the singles lineup and Blaze Bicknell and Josh Gujer. I mean, those two guys are undefeated, Adam, at this point in the season. Yeah. I mean, that, so you, you've got – those are that's a great weapon when you're almost – okay, if we can win doubles and then we can, you know, get these guys, we almost know they're going to take – singles four and six hey we only need one of the other four spots and we're gonna we're gonna win this match and uh that's the kind of depth that brian shelton has built and he's done it his way uh he was i was on the conference call with him yesterday and he was talking to some reporters from out of town who's not around the program uh and he you know he says that's the way he operates he says jeremy foley who hired him Every time Foley sees him, he calls him, there's the tortoise, because he he has a very deliberate approach to the way he does things. And he says, that's how I am. And uh, so, you know, some people say, well, it took him a while to get this program humming at this rate. But when they've been humming for three or four years now, it's it's been very, it's been with the best in the country. I mean, they made the final four in 19, and they're going to try again. They're in the Elite Eight. Uh, you got Texas A&M. Uh, later this week down in Orlando at the USTA National Campus. Uh, they 
beat Texas A&M twice this year, five to two out in College Station earlier this year. SEC tournament four and three, so there's some familiarity there. Uh, I just think at this point, the Gators. They just every time you talk to a player over there, a coach, it's all about that inward uh, focus. Uh, and Shelton's big with that. He says, you know, is he's got them really bought into what he's trying to sell, and uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see if they can finally do it. Scott and I were with Brian Shelton uh, the day he came and took the job. We went, we were in the car out there that picked him up at the airport. We brought him back. I remember just having this discussion because I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about the guy, and we got educated on that pretty quick. But he came in and he inherited a, a program, you know, quite frankly, that was that was not in a good place. Um, to say they're spinning their wheels is one thing, but the kind of the inmates are running the asylum uh, previously. And he came in and he told some guys that they weren't welcome here anymore. And some guys left. And you, I don't know if you guys remember, but there were, there were some people that probably left the program that were turning, turning back and laughing a little bit this direction because that first year under Brian Shelton, uh, Florida hosted an NSA tournament and lost in the first round to Denver. Okay. Wow. That's so, yeah. So four, four to three loss, lost to Denver. And it has been like Scott to Scott's point, a slow progression, but along the way with the backing of both athletic directors and this, the administration here, he's built this uh, program in his image and his image is class. And he tells them they will win with class. They will lose with class. And which really makes uh, uh, sticks to the point of, of, I don't know if, uh, if you heard about it or watched about it, but when Florida lost that last match against Tennessee, it got a little contentious out on the court, but mostly from one side. And Brian Shelton uh, stood there and said, shake their hands, shake their hands, shake their hands. And they were whooping it up and they were gator chomping and, and they were doing a lot of stuff uh, antagonistic wise. And there's a good chance if Florida maintains this, uh, this focus that they have, the inward focus that Scott spoke of, that they could be playing uh, Tennessee. But if it does get to that point in this uh, – in these NCAA championships, it will be in the national championship round, which would uh, make for a, quite a pregame storyline, but even better, an in-game storyline, and maybe best of all, a post-game, post-match storyline, because that could be a, that could be very, very interesting, uh, given uh, uh, depending on who wins, of course. Uh, now that we've covered all of our, our postseason action, I want to move to our PAT, uh, and I was thinking this week about memorabilia. And the reason I was thinking about that is because I saw this week that there's a huge auction about to take place. They're going to auction off Indiana Jones's fedora from Temple of Doom, lightsabers used in Star Wars movies. Uh, We've got Harry Potter's glasses from the final Harry Potter movie. This is a lot of cool stuff. Uh, And if you want these things, they're going to be pretty expensive. The most expensive item is expected to be the Indiana Jones fedora which they think will net a minimum of $150,000. Now, I don't want to ask you if you would spend that if you had it, because anyone who does that is insane. But I was thinking about what piece of memorabilia would mean the most to you. If you could have anything you wanted, what would mean the most to be able to put up on your shelf? I saw the Hope Diamond one time. I would like the Hope Diamond if I could have some memorabilia or something. I think it was under some glass in the Smithsonian Institute on a field trip that I saw. I don't know how many years ago that was. But so much stuff you can take on when you get to be my age that you want to start getting rid of it. But I do have a safe deposit box at a Wells Fargo bank here in Gainesville. 
And I do have one item in it. I, re- I did clear out our safe deposit box uh, a couple years ago, but there is one thing in it, and it is a baseball card. And it was handed down from uh, a, a, a great uncle, and he let me have it. And uh, my dad watched it for a long time, and it's, uh, he gave it to me, uh, I want to say, 25 years ago, and it's in the safety deposit box. And it is, if I'm not mistaken, a 1912 Ty Cobb. Wow, and, and it is uh, really cool. It's it's wrapped in, in a one of those sliding cellophane kind of things, so it's, it is in really really good condition. And it's kind of cool to have that. And I've taken pictures of it and, and showed people the picture of me holding it to to make sure that they could see that it's actually me holding onto it. But it's there somewhere, and I don't know if it's gain value or loss value. I'm not a, a, a trading card person. I do have a bunch of old baseball cards. Um, with some, you know, pretty, pretty good ones in, in my closet. I got uh, Nolan Ryan with the Mets in 60. I mean, I got some, I got some nice cards, but I also have a Ty Cobb and I'm going to hold on to that one. Uh, I'm not sure I want to take on a whole lot of other stuff because, you know, the more stuff like that you have, the less likely you're going to get rid of it. I guess the guy, the guys with the most uh, cojones are the guys who can get stuff like that and actually sell them. Yeah. Because there's always uh, some, probably some kind of seller's remorse when you have something that's really cool and you get rid of it. Um, because whoever buys that fedora from, from the Temple of Doom is going to be sitting there looking at a fedora for $150,000. And why, why did I buy that from that bad movie? And, and, and who's going to who's gonna buy it from me so I can actually break even on this thing eventually? But that's just how I look at it. I'm sure, I'm sure Scott has a completely different take. I'm thinking he's going to talk about maybe a, a Gene Simmons R pick or something like that. I, well, I, no, I before, before we get Scott, I, I do want to ask, has the Ty Cobb card been appraised? Do you know what it is worth at least the last time you checked? I got an idea. Yes. Can you reveal that number? Or is that, is that, no, I think, it, well, no, I, I think it's like $4,000. Oh, that's, I thought you were going to say it was worth like a hundred thousand dollars or something crazy. No, it's, it, there's another one that has a border. And if they had the border, apparently that's the expensive one or something because some card dealer looked at it. But here's the other thing. I don't know that I trust the card dealer. Eh, that's the $4,000 one, you know. Or, or I'll take it off set. your hands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sells it yeah. for 100 Yeah, yeah exactly. That's exactly. It's almost like, do I want to take it out of the safe deposit box and go get it appraised and actually put it in someone else's hand? Maybe he has some kind of thing underneath his counter that he does the old sleight of hand move on it. I, you know, I don't know. But it's, it's going to stay in my safe deposit box for a while. You know, I, when I'm thinking of this question, Adam, you're talking to a guy who, you know, I do collect some old stuff. Like, I like to collect historic newspapers, but they're not really worth any money. It's just more for a little slice of history related to what I've done for a living for all these years. Uh, I'm not a really a collector. I have a lot of baseball cards from my – the days when I was a kid, but when I was early twenties, when I was in college, actually the Joe Montana rookie card was a hot one. And I remember I had like five or six of them and I took them and sold them all. And, you know, I got some pretty decent money for it during my college years, Not probably not, not as much as certainly a Ty Cobb card or the Honus Wagner card. What was the Honus Wagner card? I'm looking up uh, 3.12 million is sold in 2016. And then you also have the Babe Ruth jersey in baseball, which sold for four and a half million dollars. Wow! Back in 2012. So I'll take either one of those pieces because what I would do if I had the Babe Ruth jersey in my 
possession right now. And they said, Scott, this is worth $4.4 million. You can do anything you want in the world with it. I would instantly go to an auction house and say, sell this for me for at least $5 million or more. Because <laughs> I'm not going to care about owning the jersey. I'm just going to see what I can get for it. And I think that's where what Chris said, I think, is the perfect point. I think the, a lot of the people who you see these crazy prices for stuff, they're the ones who really, it's a business for them. But the ones who keep it, I mean, it really means something to them. I think Scott would sleep in the Babe Ruth jersey before he sold it. He would sleep at least, in the, the, at least the night before. I would sell it in a heartbeat, fellas. I'm not into that stuff at all. That's why this question. I mean, I like the question, but if I if I could have anything, I don't know. I'd maybe a uh, maybe Eric Clapton or Robert. Uh, I mean, Jimmy Page guitar, or you know, a Slash guitar, yeah, something like go. that. Something like that. I mean, I don't know. Some of that stuff from rock and roll sells high. Obviously, sports. Michael Jordan recently sold a pair of shoes, what, for 600000 the signed shoes, which, again, like you said earlier, if you had that kind of money and could do it, it would just show you're insane to pay $600,000 for – like, I, if I met Michael Jordan, if he came down the hallway right now, hey, I, don't get me wrong, I would go out and say, hey, man, how are you? I pro- I'd hope to maybe share a story with him. I probably would not – I could care less about an autograph. I really couldn't. I might take a picture with him. How about Michael Jackson's glove? Now that would be a good one. That I think is one of the most expensive things that's ever been sold. That was I want to say that was sold a few years ago for some some millions. Um, a cool one I just thought of uh, as an answer to the question is I don't know if you guys know. Have you seen the movie Inception? One of my favorite movies of all time. But I'm thinking about okay, what's a piece of memorabilia from a movie that I love that would be really cool? I'm thinking about the spinning top. Leo's spinning top. That'd be cool, right? That's something that's a little different, but it's a meaningful movie. It's a key part. I think I came up with the best answer to my own question this week, which doesn't happen very often. Now, if you're asking about a movie, like, I'm going with the Batmobile. I want one of those real Batmobiles. I don't know that any of us will be able to acquire these items that we, uh, we've expressed we would like, but I do know that Chris and Scott will continue churning out great content on FloridaGators.com. You can also follow them on Twitter, at GatorsScott, at GatorsChris, for all of the latest on a very, very busy orange and blue calendar right now. So, gentlemen, uh, stay on the grind, and uh, we will talk to you next week. Well, thank you, Adam. For a program that historically has had a ton of high-profile walk-off wins, this year has still been wild, as Gator softball's role as the comeback kids has been a marvel. One of the keys to that success has been Hannah Adams, the senior second baseman known previously for her glove and for last year and change, her bat. We spoke to Hannah shortly after Florida's walk-off win over Texas A&M to claim the SEC regular season crown and began by asking her to take us through that moment. Yeah, it was definitely one of the most exciting games that I've played in since I've been here. And I think we've had a lot. Our past like three out of four games have been walk-offs, but um, it's really exciting. And it, I think it just shows that as long as there's outs on the board, like our team has a chance and we're not going to stop until the game's over. And I think that's something to be really proud of. And it's really cool how it's been a different person coming through every single time. It's not just one person. So I think that says a lot about our team and how tough we are. Where does that even come from, that that walk-off magic? Is that something you can describe, or is it just something a team either has or doesn't have? Yeah, um, I mean, Coach Walton 
really preaches about it a lot that as long as we have an out on the board that we're still in the game and even where when we're behind in games he always reminds us of it so I think he does a really good job of giving us that mentality during games we're going to get back to what's happening in the the here and now with this team in a moment but I want to take things back if we can go all the way to the beginning of your story tell us about where you're from your family all the uh, the good growing up details yeah um I grew up in Houston Georgia and I went to Mill Creek High School um, my mom is Dana Adams, my dad, Shane Adams. And then I have a little brother. His name's Dylan. Um, yeah, I grew up in Hushin, went to Mill Creek all my life. We actually just recently moved this past year um, into Carnesville, Georgia, which is like the middle of nowhere. There's like nothing really <laughs> around there. So that's definitely different for me. Um, Hushin's like one of the most populated places. I went to the biggest high school in Georgia. And then now moving there is definitely a big difference. But my dad played baseball in college, so that's where I got a lot of my softball genes from. I think he taught me a lot growing up since he played softball. And then my brother, who used to play baseball, too. So we've always grown up around softball and baseball. Yeah, with that pedigree, how early were you introduced to the game? I don't know if you were, you were born with a, a bat or not, but when did, when did softball become part of your life? Yeah, I started when I was four and I actually used to be right-handed, but my dad, he was left-handed. So he's the, he switched me over to become a lefty. So that's actually how I became left-handed because it was easier for him to teach me how to hit left-handed. When you got to Florida, you were known as really a defensive star and you've been at second base the whole time. But I know most often, if you're that good of a middle infielder at the college level, you were probably a shortstop uh, before you got to college. Is that your story as well? Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, in travel ball and stuff before college, I was always shortstop. But then when I got here, obviously had to make the switch because we had Sophia at shortstop. So it was best for the team for me to be at second. But yeah, before college, I was always playing shortstop. As far as your relationship to softball, was it love at first sight, love at first bat? Uh, was it something you took a little while to warm up to? Or did you immediately know this is something I really want to dedicate myself to? Yeah, I think I've always, ever since I started wanting to play softball, I never had any doubts or anything about if I wanted to play softball or not. So I think it's always definitely been my favorite sport. Um, I played basketball a little bit growing up, but then I chose softball over basketball. It was an easy decision for me. In terms of recruiting, it seems like that's starting earlier and earlier. But what do you remember for you? When did the process start? When did you start getting offers, start getting calls and everything that, that went into that process? Yeah, um, I committed in high school, actually, it was my freshman or sophomore year, but I just remember coming here on visits and it was like one of the happiest and most relieving times in my life, I think, to be able to come here because Florida was always my number one school. So coming here and being able to commit in high school was really cool for me. What was it that made Florida such a clear choice for you? Because I'm sure where you were from, there were a lot of people that thought you should be in red and black as opposed to orange and blue, but it doesn't seem like that was really ever much of a, of a choice for you. For sure. For sure. Um, I definitely knew that I wanted to go out of the state, but I wanted to be close to home still. So I think that was a big factor for me because I love the fact that my family is still able to come to the games in a drive, like it's not too far for them to come to the game. So that was a big part for me. And then the coaching staff, I think coach Walton is one of the best coaches in the country. He teaches me something every single day that I never even thought, I don't know. I think he has made me improve more than I ever thought I could coming here. And then just the atmosphere and everything about Florida and academics, it was all of that put together. Over the course of four years, I'm sure that's a, that's a lot of lessons that you've learned from coach Walton over this time. Um, 
just trying to put it in context recently, what's a recent example of something that he taught you or something you learned from him that, that's helped you grow more as a player? Well, recently for me in my like third and fourth year, the main thing that he's taught me is being confident in myself and knowing the type of player that I am because my freshman and sophomore year, I was just kind of not as confident in myself. And I think that affected my performance. And so he kind of came to me and helped me grow as a player on the field and grew my confidence a lot. You know, you came into the program at a time where there were some incredible players. And if you look at the success of the, the team over the course of the last decade or so, uh, that's almost always the case. But some really big, big stars, stalwarts in that lineup that were there when you arrived. What do you remember about when you got on campus? Who really took you under their wing and, and helped you develop? Definitely Sophia Reynoso, Nicole DeWitt, and Amanda Lawrence. They were huge impacts on me ever since I stepped on campus. And they took me in my freshman year and really taught me everything that I needed to know. There are a lot of basics to softball. I'm sure you already came in with and things you could have picked up on your own. But in terms of what it meant to be a Gator and what came with that, what did you learn from some of those older players who had, uh, I'm sure, a lot of specific wisdom to share about you know, carrying the mantle of the orange and blue? Yeah, I think um, coming in as a freshman with all those players, it can be kind of intimidating in a way. But they were very like they made me feel very welcomed and told me that I was going to have a big part on the team and to understand that they're all going to have my back no matter what, and that they're going to help me along the way. So just coming in as a freshman and being confident in myself from the beginning with them on the field was one of the biggest things. You know, a lot of players come on and especially if you're, you're very early on, you're going to have to stay back a little bit, right? You came on and were immediately starting on a team that went to the college world series and we was playing at a really, really high level with high expectations what was that like as a freshman? What were the challenges that, that that presented to you? Yeah, I think it was really cool for me to be able to come in and start. I think that was my goal my freshman year. I wanted to play when I got there. But um, the challenges, I just feel like, like I said, just like being able to be confident in myself because you're going to have failures that maybe you're not used to once you get to college, like growing up in travel ball and everything. It's always just kind of like um, you're always really successful. And getting to college was just kind of like a wake up call for me. Like it was really hard. And, but I think the main thing that I need to learn was to stay confident in myself, even through the ups and downs of it all, because it's going to happen regardless. So just staying confident in myself. When you look at last year, uh, you guys were relatively early in your season, but you were really rolling along. Things were going great. Uh, and then COVID hits and suddenly the, the whole thing is shut down. And at a time when you're expecting to have the, the framework of a season and have that really be, you know, your, your construct, that all goes away. Um, you know, now looking back over your later, what do you remember about that time? How did you get through that? And how did you find routine and engagement to, to make sure that you didn't slip during that stretch? Yeah, I think that was definitely a really hard time, but, um, through all of it, we all stayed in contact. We all got on Zoom calls every week so that we could, um, stay in touch with each other. And, um, coach Walton did a good job of making sure that we were all in contact with that every single week. So it was really nice to be able, even though we weren't all in Gainesville, that we could still see each other's faces. And even though it was a hard time, it was still really good to be able to see each other through all of that. From talking to all the athletes I've had the chance to over the course of last year, you hear a lot of different answers to, to this question, but in terms of just staying sane and, and staying entertained, uh, during that stretch, what was it that, that did it for you? Was it, were you on a Netflix binge? Did you pick up some new hobbies? How did you uh, just emotionally stay engaged during that period? Um, well, it was my first time being at my new house that we moved into. So um, my brother and my family was there. So it was really good to be able to spend the time with them. But then 
kind of like doing stuff around the house with them. It's like in the middle of the country. So we like go out and ride four wheelers and like go fishing and stuff like that. That's pretty much it. There's like no service out there. So I couldn't really be <laughs> on my phone or anything. So literally just being outside and hanging out with my brother a lot. I'm not even sure how that, how that works with, with most of, uh, of today's millennials and, uh, and Gen Zers. Um, were, were you, were you freaking out? Were you like desperately craving a signal? Uh, how did you survive without service for a long period of time like that? Um, I don't think it was really that stressful for me, but it was also kind of new for me. So I feel like after a while I would probably be like, okay, I'm tired of this, but, um, I thought it was really good for me me and my brother actually got really close over it because we weren't able to do any of that stuff. And we just really got to spend quality time together. I think I've asked this of almost every athlete I've, I've talked to in the last year. Um, but thinking about what you went through during the quarantine period, if you had to pick one person to hole up with, so you're only with one teammate and you've got to stay with them the entire time, no exceptions, uh, who would that person be and why? Oh, I would pick um, Katie Kistler because she's my best friend on the team. We've gotten super close with each other. We hang out like every single day. And I don't know, I feel like if I wasn't able to see her, I'd probably go crazy. So I would definitely pick Katie. She's very energetic, very entertaining. I would never be bored. Um, Yeah, we're just besties. So I think I would have to pick her. So you've been part of some really, really big moments over the course of the last four years, um, whether it's one you've created yourself or you know, you're in the dugout, you're on the field. Um, as far as of moments, games that you weren't directly involved in, but you were experiencing with your teammates, what memories stand out the most when you think about your, your Gator career? Um, yeah, there's a few that come to my mind. Definitely Jordan Matthews walk-off home run to go to the World Series. That was my first real big moment that I was a part of, I feel like, and it's still one of the biggest that I've ever been a part of. And then in 2019, when we won the SEC tournament championship after our season wasn't as good as we expected it to, I think that was really cool for us. And I'll remember that forever because we really came together as a team and then still went to the world series after that. And after the high expectations of that year and not having a season, we really wanted to, but still being able to come together in the end was really cool for us. And then this year, we've had like a ton of walk-offs that are all really yeah, yeah. fun, and they all ended up being really important for us, so I think those were really cool. And then my freshman year World Series, um, playing against Georgia, my first game ever at the World Series, and we run ruled them. That was something that I'll never forget. I think that was really fun, too. Okay, so let's take it now to a more personal level. Uh, what about moments that you've directly impacted, whether it's a walk-off hit, a defensive play, et cetera, what stands out the most from what you have personally been able to make happen for this team? Um, I think some things that I remember are my, I hit a home run my freshman year at the world series. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever because my freshman year, I like never hit home runs. And then just like being at the world series was like my dream ever since I was little. So I think that was one of the moments that really stuck out to me. And I was just like, I don't know, living my dream. And it was really cool. I know you guys are trained, especially by Coach Walton, to be hyper-focused on what is next, what is directly in front of you. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to ask you about future opponents or anything like that. But what I do want to know is what's next for you personally? Uh, you have the option of coming back another year. Is that something you've thought about yet? Do you know what you're going to do? If not that, uh, where does your career go next? I mean, I'm not sure how much time you've had to think about all this. But uh, at the moment, how does this all stack up for you? Yeah, um, I haven't really thought much about after college, but I do know that I'm going to take my fifth year here. So I'll be back next year 
for softball and for school to finish my degree. But as far as after college and softball, I haven't thought that far ahead. You know, it's interesting as I was asking all these questions, thinking this is, uh, you know, this is coming down to the end of the road. Let's get those memories out. But you're obviously you're, you're going to be here for another year. Uh, and I know that that's a decision that a lot of your, your teammates had to make last year. And some decided to stay. Some decided that it was time to move on. How did you come to the decision to return and, and take that fifth year opportunity? Um, I just think I definitely want to finish out four full years here and I still have time for my degree. So I just think it was the best option for me to come back and finish school and to be able to play softball because I'm definitely not ready to be done with softball yet. So getting the extra year, I was really happy about that. Final question for you, bringing things back into the present. Enough of this, this future talk. Um, What's it going to take for this team to have a successful postseason run? You know what it takes you to Oklahoma City. You've been there multiple times. Uh, what does this team need to do to, to have that journey ahead of them and, and reach that final goal? Yeah, I think we just have to make sure that we keep focusing on ourselves in the postseason. And um, I'm not, I don't want to say like forgetting about the regular season, but now at this point, no one's stats matter and nothing matters. So everyone has the equal opportunity to have um, an impact on the team. And I think we just need to make sure that we trust our preparation. We prepare really hard every single day at practice and just know that that's going to work for us. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for your time. Good luck the rest of the way. And we certainly hope to see you uh, in a few weeks out in Oklahoma City. Thank you. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.